hey, uh, thanks for being with us today. This is Pancake, Pancakes and PJs Sunday, where we, you know, we normally do two services and we cancel one and do pancake breakfast during first and um, the festive people among us wear their PJs and we pile in here for second. And uh, if you, if you hopefully you got plenty to eat and if you got here late, I don't know, there might be cold pancakes in the kitchen after church. We'll see. Um, but uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we're glad to have you here with us today. Uh, we are kicking off a, just a short little three-week series this weekend that really ties into uh, the season that we're in. As Pastor Laura mentioned, uh, this, this is kind of the season where you look back over the year past and try and figure out, hey, did, did I spend this thing well? And you look ahead to, you know, to the season to come and, and you try and figure out what are the things I want to do and what are the things I want to stop doing. And uh, th- this is the time of year with, where we tend to wrestle with questions uh, like this one. What can I do to maximize meaning and purpose in my life this year? And uh, this is a question that our culture is okay with taking a stab at an answer for us. In fact, I um, did, you know, did some research uh, to get prepared for this message and read some different articles. And our culture you know, had all kinds of things to say about what kind of uh, factors in our lives can serve as barriers to this, what kind of factors can serve to, as catalysts to this, and read some things that were, um, frankly, bizarre and some things that were really very fascinating. And um, you know, I read about you know, ideas like um, building tools and creative visualization and this is my favorite one, intervention-based life crafting. <laughs> How can you go wrong with that, right? You know? um, and it was interesting because like, in spite of all the different fancy names they had for it, when, when I read an article, the answer, was pre- the answer was pretty much the same every time. They all had, they all had this in common. They, all, they were like, hey, you need to know yourself, your capabilities, your capacity, and you need to set goals in the context of accountability. They all pretty much, no matter what kind of crazy name they stuck on it, that's the conclusion they came to. They had that in common. And this is the other thing they had in common that was interesting to me. There was never any source of authority that was referred to as they tried to answer a pretty significant question. Like the, the one article is like, hey, it's creative visualization. You need to visualize the year to come and be aware of yourself and set some goals in the context of accountability, and that's going to get you there. But when you, when you took a step back and you went, well, says who? Like, how do I know that that's going to work? What's the authority behind the answer that you're giving here? None of the articles that I read did that. So what we're going to do starting today and over the next couple weeks is we're going to spend some time looking at the life of a character in the Bible named Gideon. And just kind of kind of comb through his life a little bit and see how his life illustrates for us what we can do to live lives of meaning and purpose in this coming year. And as we do, the, the conclusions that we come to, when we go, what's the source of authority behind that? Our answer is going to be God himself. And if you sit there and you go, well, how, how do you get to that? Here's how. As the church... Part of what it means to be the church, it means to be that that we're a community of people who believe that what this book, what the Bible says about itself is actually true. And the Bible will will claim that it's actually God's word to us. That the creator of the universe has spoken to us in this book about how to best live our lives. 
In fact, one of the things that the Bible will, will tell us about histories recorded in it, in the Old Testament specifically like Gideon's, is this. We read, those things, and those things is referring back to the, the historical narratives that we find in the Old Testament about people's lives. Gideon happens just to be one of them. But it says, those things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. That's because we are living at a time when God's work is being completed. In other words, histories like Gideon's are there to help us figure out how to live our lives well. And so we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks just kind of combing through his history and seeing what it can teach us about questions that are just so relevant to us in a season like today. So let's pray together, invite God to be part of this time, and then we'll kind of dig into Gideon's story a little bit this morning. Father, just as we come together today, we just pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your truth. If there's habits that, that we have formed over the last year or even beyond that that we need to think about that aren't good for us or there are things that, that we are not doing that we need to start doing, if there are ways in which we can really live into the, the kind of meaning and purpose that you have for us, just make us receptive to that today. Help us to see your truth and what it can look like in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Gideon's story begins in the book of Judges, chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, you can open up there, you can pull up on your device, or we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. And it begins this way. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, this isn't a terribly exciting introduction to his story, but there's actually a ton that's just packed into this little verse here. And to really appreciate Gideon and what's going on in the lives of the Israelites at this time, you have to kind of unpack this. So bear with me as we nerd out a little bit on this, okay? So the, the Israelites at this point in their history... They're living in a covenant relationship with God. They've said to him, hey, we want you to be our God. We want to be your people. And if, you, if you've got some time, you know, I don't know, tomorrow's New Year's Day. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. If you want to read about all the details of that covenant relationship, you start about two-thirds of the way through the book of Exodus, and you read that and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you'll have it all down pat, all right? Um, some people love that section of the Bible. For most people, that's the section of the Bible they get to and they quit trying to read their Bible through because it's not terribly exciting, but it's, it's in there. It's all the details of the relationship are spelled out. And in fact, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, 28, God explicitly, like in detail, explains to the Israelites, okay, if you live in relationship with me, here's what will happen if you do it right, here's what will happen if you do it wrong. Like in those three chapters, God goes out of his way to be like, hey, if you live, you, you live up to your end of the deal, here are all the ways I'm going to be with you and that I will bless you. If you're faithful to me, here's how it'll work. And then in those, those three chapters, he's like, hey, if you're unfaithful to this relationship, here are all the ways that I will discipline or curse you. And then multiple times in their histories of people, the Israelites go back to those chapters 
and they reaffirm that covenant relationship. They say to God, hey, we want you to be our God. We want to be your people. We understand what's at stake. We understand what's expected. Sign us up. We want that deal. Now, the book of Judges, you have this cycle that takes place in the book of Judges. Just works itself over a whole bunch of times. And the way the cycle works is the Israelites, initially, they're serving God. They're faithful to him. And all the blessings that he's promised, they get to enjoy those blessings. Then somewhere along the line, the Israelites are like, you know what? I don't know. I'm not so sure about God. They begin to take him for granted. They instead begin to embrace the standards of the culture that surrounds them rather than living their lives by the directives that God has given them. They fall into sin and idolatry, and exactly what God said would happen in those chapters happens. You know, they, they, they turn to, a, to, to the culture that surrounds them that promises them all kinds of freedom. If you'll just throw off the restrictive standards of your God, and instead of, instead of getting the freedom they were promised, they find themselves enslaved. And so they, they turn to sin and idolatry, they find themselves enslaved, Eventually, they realize, we got duped, and they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer who is called a, a judge. That's right. That's why it's called the book of Judges, right? It's just about one, because you see this cycle again and again, and you see one judge after another after another, and the judge will come, and the judge will deliver them, and then the cycle starts again. The book of Judges is this clinic on the mercy of God. As for 400 years, the Israelites, you just watch them go through this cycle again and again and again and again. About a dozen times in the book of Judges, this cycle plays itself out again. Now, Gideon's story picks up after they've gone through this cycle three times completely, and they're now in round four. All right? So that, that's where, where it picks up. So, and, and as... As they're there in this cycle again, you know, they've, they've, they've forsaken God, they've fallen into sin and idolatry, now they find themselves enslaved. And this time, God's discipline comes in the form of a group called the Midianites. And this is how the book of Judges describes it. It says, because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined all the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them because <clears throat> count them or their camels, they invaded the land and they ravaged it. So what, what you have going on here is something akin to that, that, that old Pixar movie, A Bug's Life. Anybody remember this? <laughs> right? So like the ants would spend all summer, you know, they're planting the crops and then they would, they would harvest it in the fall, right? And then, you know, the, the grasshoppers come in in the fall and they just take everything. And the ants can't do a thing about it because the grasshoppers are big and strong and nasty. Well, the, the Israelites spend, I mean, they do the responsible thing. They plant their fields. They raise their livestock. And then in the fall, the Midianites and other eastern countries, they just come swarming in with overwhelming numbers and overwhelming force. And they take everything. And it gets to the point where the Israelites are so desperate, like 
any hidey hole I can find to cache a little bit of something in, I'm going to do that just in the hopes that I'm going to survive the winter and like maybe something will be different this next season. And if, if you remember, this has been going on now for seven years straight. This is how they're living. So, the Israelites, they cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord because of Midian. And God sends them this prophet with this really encouraging message. Right? The prophet says to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. And that's the end of his message. Again, super encouraging guy, right? <laughs> I mean, he's basically saying, okay, we've been playing this game for seven years. How did you think this is going to work? God told you, this is what's going to happen if you do this. You did that thing exactly. Just what God said would happen if you did that thing has happened to you. You made your bed. Now why don't you lay in it for a bit? So it's at this point that we actually, all this history and background, now we're going to meet Gideon. So the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Orath that belonged to Joash the Bazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, when you threshed wheat in the ancient world, what you would typically do is you would go find a high, arid, visible place. And that's where you would take that, that wheat that you'd harvested, you'd work it, you'd throw it up in the air, and because it's in that open spot, you know, the breeze comes through and blows off the chaff and the wheat falls back down. Wine press is like the lowest place you can find, like a cistern in the ground, because liquid always finds the lowest spot, right? For Gideon to be threshing wheat in a wine press makes no sense. It's, it's completely counterproductive. There's no breeze down there, right? He is threshing wheat in a wine press because he is hiding. He's trying to find this secret private place where he can process his wheat even though it's completely counterproductive for fear that the, 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 the hordes of the Midianites are going to come and see him take what little he's got to try and make it through to the next season. This is where we meet this guy and this is what he is up to. He's down there in this wine press just trying to, to process some wheat and just trying to make it through to the next season because of the discipline that he and his people are living in in the midst of this time. Now, we've just met Gideon, but we've got enough history and enough background to already begin to see some of the answers to the questions that we posed at the beginning. Questions like these. Bring, bring up some questions for me down there. Thank you. All right. I think we had a slide that had all four of them that I skipped. Can you hear me down there? Come on, Johannes. There we go. All right. You just give him a second. That guy's going to get there. All right. This is, this, Gideon's story kind of gets after questions like these. Like, what are the factors that serve as 
barriers to a life of meaning and purpose? Like, what are the things that in my life are going to get in the way of this? Or what are the factors that will serve as catalysts to a life of meaning and purpose? What, what are the pieces in my life that will actually drive that forward? And what kind of person can God use in meaningful ways? Could God really use somebody like you or like me in a meaningful way? And if he can, how does God go about doing that? This weekend and the weeks to come, we're going to try and work our way through these questions. And already, as we've begun to just navigate through some of the history and meet Gideon, we're already beginning to see some of the answers to this first question. See, one of the, one of the barriers to a life of meaning and purpose for God's people is when they let themselves have their worldview shaped by and the way they're going to live their lives directed by the culture that surrounds them rather than the directives that God has given them. When, when our culture shapes our worldview, when our culture dictates how we live our lives rather than God, it almost always serves as a barrier to God's people. Gideon, the Israelites, Gideon's family, they're surrounded by a culture that has a radically different idea about worldview and living than what God had instructed his people for. The, the, the Ammonite culture, the Midianite culture, when it came to sexuality, when it came to money, when it came to the sanctity of life, when it came to worship and more, they regularly said to a guy like Gideon, Listen, your God, his ideas about life are so old-fashioned. His ideas about living are so restrictive. We have got something so much more liberating. We've got something progressive for you. Come and try this on. This will set you free. And Gideon and his family and the Israelites, they just dove headfirst into that. Only to have the people and practices who promised them freedom instead enslave them. Now, they should have known this was coming. They watched the cycle work itself out three times over, and they're in it for the fourth time. But, but here they are. Rather than finding freedom and meaning and purpose, they found themselves enslaved living lives, going nowhere, and doing nothing. They were incredibly frustrated. The culture that surrounds us today, it makes the same accusations about the scriptures that the culture that Gideon lived in made. And the culture that surrounds us today, it makes the same promises to you and me that the culture that surrounded Gideon promised him. If as God's people today, we let our worldview be shaped by our culture, if we let the way that we live be directed by the culture rather than by the scriptures, we will find ourselves in the same place that Gideon and the Israelites found themselves. We'll find ourselves frustrated, we'll find ourselves unfulfilled, and we'll find ourselves enslaved. We'll find ourselves enslaved to death, We'll find ourselves enslaved to dysfunction, to anxiety, to depression, to loneliness, 
and more. The very people and the very practices that promise to set us free will instead shackle us. One of the barriers to this kind of life and the year to come, really at any time, but this is the time of year when we're open to this. One of the barriers is when God's people live their lives according to the standard of the culture rather than the directives he's given them. Now, as Gideon's story continues, I love some of the irony in what we read next. So the angel Lord comes and it sits down under this oak tree, and Gideon's you know, threshing his wheat in the wine press, and the angel appears, and the angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Thank you. Somebody sees the irony. So, so here's Gideon, right? And right now his life is characterized by secrecy and stealth and running scared and a scarcity kind of mindset. And the angel of the Lord, who is a manifestation of divinity here on earth in the Old Testament, he shows up and he's like, what's up, mighty warrior? God is with you. And Gideon, he's like, he's, he's looking around, and he's like, <laughs> did somebody else sneak into the wine press with me? Because I don't know who this guy's talking to, you know? Like, I, Gideon is threshing wheat in a hole in the ground to try and keep the biggest bully on the playground from shaking him down for his lunch money again, right? And so Gideon, he, he responds, he says, um, pardon me, my lord, <laughs> but uh, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where, where are all the wonders, you know, that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Let me tell you how this works, pal. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, at this point, we find Israel full on doing what God has told them not to do, they are full-on experiencing what God told them would happen if they did that. But rather than look inward for the source of some of the problems that Gideon is experiencing, Gideon instead shakes a fist at heaven and points a finger at God. And he's like, listen, if God is so good, why is my life so bad? If God has done all these great things in the past, where's mine in the present? Let me tell you about God, pal. He's handed us over to Midian. He has abandoned us. Now, I would agree with Gideon that God handed them over to the Midianites. But it wasn't about God abandoning the Israelites. It was about the Israelites abandoning God. And it's here that we see the second barrier to a life of meaning and purpose. So that, that first barrier is when God's people live their lives according to the directives of the culture that surrounds them rather than, than, than what God has given them. The second barrier is simply this. It's an unrepentant heart. An unrepentant heart. See, God is confronting the Israelites. He's confronting them about their sin. He's doing, through, doing so through the discipline that he sent through the Midianites. And rather than taking a step back and going, okay, 
our life is a mess right now. I wonder if there's anything we're doing that's contributing to the mess we're experiencing. Gideon instead projects his problems on God with his whole, hey, God's abandoned us speech. An unrepentant heart is serving as another barrier to the kind of life of meaning and purpose that he longs for. See, here's, as we move in this new year, if, if there are ways in which we've embraced the standards of the culture that surrounds us rather than the directives God has given us, and God is trying to, to deal with us on that. Maybe it's like he's just poking our conscience. Like his spirit is convicting ours. Or maybe he sends somebody who, who, who we share this community of faith with who's you know, sat down with us and said, hey, I, I could be wrong, but this is what I think is going on in your life. And if this is going on in your life, this isn't right. Or maybe we actually are experiencing like firsthand, like, you, you, you know, you're like, man, you talk about the discipline of God. I get it. I'm experiencing that right now. The response, the response that will move our lives in the direction we long for them to move in in this year to come is repentance. To, to agree with God when sin is sin and to turn from that sin and to turn towards God. A heart that refuses to do that. And this is for seven years now. This is how the Israelites have been living. A heart that refuses to do that. It just, it is a barrier. It's a roadblock. They will be stuck in that place of frustration and futility and enslavement. Now, you're like, man, this is a downer. I get it. Happy New Year. All right. You got you to run your wind sprints, right? So question number one is all about the barriers. Question number two is about the catalysts. And as we continue in Gideon's story, we begin to see some of the catalysts to a life of meaning and purpose. And quite frankly, it's a little bit more encouraging. So uh, again, Gideon, we, we find Gideon living in this, this secrecy, stealth, you know, running scared, scarcity kind of mindset. In the midst of this, God is seeking to bring hope and redemption. Again, this has been how, this is seven years straight they've been living like this. They're in cycle number four. They've watched this happen three times over. Gideon is, you know, it's, this is all God's fault. And in the midst of all of this, God is on the move to do something redemptive in Gideon's life and in the lives of his people. In calling Gideon mighty warrior, mighty warrior, God's reminding Gideon that when God looks at him, he doesn't just see where Gideon's been or how Gideon's failed, but God sees all that Gideon could be and all that Gideon could do if Gideon would just follow him. And, and with a picture of that redeemed life in mind, God says to Gideon next, even after Gideon's just projected all the blame on God, God says to Gideon next, he says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hands. Am I not 
sending you. God's saying, get in. Even in the midst of all the secrecy and stealth and running scared and just scarcity mindset, let me tell you what I see in you, Gideon. I see strength. I see strength. I see somebody who could be an answer to desperate people's prayers. Gideon, when I look at you, I see someone who could play a major role in the redemptive work I'm about to bring on to my covenant people. I don't just see who you were. I see who you could be. Now, Gideon, God bless his soul, he's still playing catch-up conceptually. So he, he, he replies again, what, pardon me? <laughs> he goes there again. Pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least of my family. Again, he's like, listen, I am the smallest, most insignificant person that I know. How in the world am I going to accomplish something of that magnitude? And God says to him, I will be with you. I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon, I'm going to be with you. This isn't about your background. This isn't about your pedigree. This isn't about your talent. This isn't about your education. This isn't about your strength or your skill. This is about you locking arms with me, living in intimate relationship. And my presence in your life is what's going to make this possible. So, Gideon, we, we see barriers and we see catalysts. Catalysts. And again, I would argue the catalysts come in knowing. In knowing. Knowing that, that just like Gideon, no matter how far down the rabbit hole of our culture we have gone, God's not done with us. The Israelites, as they pursued their culture, they engaged in things like infant sacrifice and cult prostitution, a complete disregard for marriage and family. They got to the point where they're worshiping statues. God had not given up on them. No matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, God hasn't given up on you. Other people may have given up on you. You may have given up on you. God has not given up on you. And as you begin this new year, he wants you to know that. Gideon's story is there so you would know God is not through with you. And his story is there to let you know that when God sees you, he doesn't just see what you've done wrong or how you failed or who you have become. When God sees you, he sees strength. He sees who you could be and what you could do as you move into this new year if you would just follow him. And God wants you to know that he will be with you. The, the, this isn't about your background or your pedigree. 
It's not about your talents or your skills. It's not about your strength or your education. It is about you locking arms with God, living an intimate relationship with him, and him doing something through you. This story is here so that we would know these things. So is this part of Gideon's story as it wraps up? Gideon realizes that he's been talking with God, and it freaks him out. And God very graciously lets him know, you're not going to die. And so Gideon builds an altar to the Lord, and there he called it, the Lord is peace. So back to our questions. And Johannes, if you can bring up all four again, thank you, sir. To wrap this up, just by way of review, what kind of factors will serve as barriers to a life of meaning and purpose? Letting our lives be directed by the culture that surrounds us rather than the directives that God has given us. And then having an unrepentant heart when that's the case. And so what we want to do is encourage you this weekend and the weeks to come, again, this is a season of year that we're just most prone to do this, so to take a step back and be introspective and look at our lives and go, okay, what... Where is my worldview shaped by culture rather than scripture? Where am I living my life in a way that reflects the values of my culture rather than the values of my God? And where that's the case for me, I want to repent. I want to call sin what it is. I want to agree with God about this. And then I want to turn from that and turn towards him. Question number two. What kind of factors will serve as catalysts to a life of meaning or purpose? Just like we got done saying, it's about knowing. It's about knowing. Knowing God has not given up on me. God doesn't just see where I've been. He sees who I could be. Knowing that God will be with me. And again, th this week and the weeks to come, we would encourage you to take a step back and just pray, God, Please let those truths take root in my soul and shape who I am in the year to come. Now, this still leaves us with questions three and four, which, quite frankly, we don't have any time to talk about today. <laughs> so we hope you come back next week as we continue to look at Gideon's life and how it illustrates some answers for us to those questions and more. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that you would meet us. Father, there, there are um, just some of us today. You've already been at work in our hearts. You've sent people to have conversations with us. You keep poking our conscience You've been on the move, trying to rattle us and help us to just see the barriers that stand between us and you. And Father, for some of us, this is a time when we're ready to move on in the cycle. And so we just want to come to you in the quietness of this moment and in our hearts acknowledge what is getting between us and you and the lives you've called us to. And Father, we just, in your grace, in your strength, we want to turn from that 
and turn to you. Father, for others of us, we just, we just ask that you would help us to know, just to know you have not given up on us. God, give us just a taste of the vision that you have for who we could be. Just thank you that you see us for so much more than our mistakes, than our rebellion, than our sin. Be with us, we pray. Help us to sense your presence, to lock arms with you, to live in intimate relationship with you in this year to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.